You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, if staying on top of your budget and protecting your home are goals for this year, and why wouldn't they be? That should be your goals for every single year. Then take a look at American Home Shield. American Home Shield gives you a plan for when stuff breaks down in your home. And I'm talking about the not-so-easy-to-fix stuff. The sometimes pretty expensive stuff like your refrigerator, heating, air conditioning, plumbing, and electrical. Trust me, when it happens, not if, but when, because you know what's going to happen. When it does, you will fully appreciate American Home Shield to see everything they cover and to save $50 to Today, go to ahs.com slash Rome, ahs.com slash Rome. And if American Home Shield can't repair the covered item, they will replace it or they will offer an alternative solution. And as the nation's largest provider, they have paid more in home warranty claims than any other company. It's added up to more than $2 billion in the last five years alone. America's most preferred home warranty, more than 1.8 million customers now. Once again, go to ahs.com slash Rome and save 50 bucks today. Start protecting your home and budget from inevitable breakdowns. ahs.com slash Rome. ahs.com slash R-O-M-E. 50 bucks off any plan. Check it out right now. American Home Shield. Be sure with the shield. Limitations and exclusions do apply. Make sure you see plan for details. Anyway, Dana, Dana White, UFC president, never got back to me. So I went to my buddy's house that night, had a few beers, watched a basketball game. Nothing crazy, but still definitely overindulged. And then the next morning on SportsCenter, they announced that I was fighting for the middleweight world title in two weeks. Holy I was shit. Holy shit. Hey now, what's going on? Welcome back. For another episode of the Jim Rome Podcast. And if you are here, you are going to be jacked. I am absolutely hyped to bring this to you because this week's guest came in and he crushed it. My man is a UFC Hall of Famer, the former middleweight champion of the world, the first Brit to ever hold a title belt in company history, the winner of the Ultimate Fighter 3. He has starred in movies such as Den of Thieves, Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. He is the host of the Believe You Me podcast. He is the EP of his own upcoming doc. He is the author of Quitters Never Win, My Life in the UFC. By now, you know I'm talking about the ultimate badass, Michael Bisping. If there was ever somebody who came in and murdered our podcast, it is this guy, and it's episode 123, and it's coming at you right now. Michael, it's great to have you on the podcast. Let me first talk, and I appreciate you doing this very much. You know, writers and publishers, Michael, would come at you so many times to get you to tell your story, and you always said no. Why did you decide to take this on, and why is this the right time to tell your story in book form? Yeah, well, I guess, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, in the past, some people had come to me with a book deal, but I was still fighting. I was still active, and I hadn't won the belt yet, so, you know, I mean, it's fair to say that the story wasn't complete. Uh, Then when I retired, you know, a lot of people spoke to me about it saying, you know, I should think about doing a book because, you know, I had to fight through a lot of adversity in my career. I had a lot of injuries along the way. And, 
it's a pretty good story. So I thought, you know, why not? I've got the time on my hands now. You know, it's a great story, actually, and there's so much in that. The, the, the adversity you had to overcome, the injuries you had to come through, the fact you won that world championship belt. Now, the thing to me, you've always been a really straight shooter. You were as a fighter. You are now as an analyst. You never held back, but you said recently that writing the book was cathartic. How so? Yeah, you know, I mean, because... You know, I had to sit down. I, I wrote it with a friend of mine that used to work for the UFC, Anthony Evans. And, you know, sitting down with him every night, it was almost like a, a therapy session. And I do kind of miss those uh, free therapy sessions, which I had because God knows I could use some more, certainly, throughout this troubling time we find ourselves in now. So, yeah, just, just you know, going through everything, reliving some of those memories, some of the emotions. You know, the journey of a fighter is uh, it's full of a lot of ups and downs, you know, a lot of pain. And I'm not talking necessarily physical pain. I'm talking emotional pains, you know. So, you know, we all have our dreams, what we want to achieve in life. And when you get close to them and then you you lose out, yeah, it sucks, you know. But there, there was other things as well, you know, talking about my childhood, talking about some of the trouble I got into as a youngster. And just, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I guess it makes it a good book. But, uh, you know, a, a very colorful life I've lived shall we say. Now you have. Now, so Michael, you're, you're a fighter at heart. What happens when you're no longer able to do the thing that you're put on this earth to do? What's it been like the last couple of years? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I guess in some ways I was kind of lucky because I, you know, I had a well-documented eye injury in 2013. And, you know, it was always touch and go getting cleared by the doctors. And I always knew that at any time, my fight career could be taken away from me. So therefore, that forced me then. In hindsight, it was a blessing in disguise because it forced me to start looking into being able to sustain or make a living outside of fighting. So I started focusing on doing my own podcast, started focusing on acting, working as a presenter, a commentator, an analyst. Uh, and it, it kind of gave me an identity outside of fighting. So when that day came, I was already doing something else, if you know what I'm saying. So fortunately, when I decided to step away from the sport, uh, I already had a lot of things to go to. And I'm very, very busy. Fortunately, the UFC, you know, they kindly gave me a role as a commentator now. So I'm still very much involved with the sport. Uh, if I wasn't, I think if I wasn't a commentator, I'd certainly struggle with it way more, you know, because I do miss it. I miss it greatly. I love that sport. and It's what, you know, gave me... My, me, me and my family, a great life, you know, and as I say, I'm an expert on that sport. You can, you know, the amount of time I put into mixed martial arts, you can literally train to be anything. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, a surgeon, you know, so fortunately that is my expert subject and I'm still able to make a living from it. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, you know, that, because I knew I had that eye injury, that made the transition uh, way smoother. So it was kind of a, a high, uh, sorry, a blessing in hindsight. You know, Michael, hardcore fight fans know about the eye injury, but understand that you're talking to an audience right now where people know of you, but they might not know intimately about your career. When you talk about the eye injury, what were you dealing with specifically? How significant was it? Yeah, so it started with a detached retina in 2013. I had a, uh, it's called a scleral buckle uh, operation. They, they, they repaired it. And then like an idiot, I started fighting again and probably sparring too hard not wearing headgear, and then the retina detached once again, uh, and they fixed it again. And then one day, I remember I was walking the dog, and uh, I started getting a headache. Within 30 minutes, I would say, I was led face down on the floor, screaming in agony. 
absolutely screaming at the top of my voice. So my wife called my doctor, who unfortunately was just in the operating room, so he couldn't see me. So he sent me to another doctor. I went down to see this doctor, and they did a pressure, sorry, a test of the pressure on my eye. And the, a normal person's pressure is between 9 and 20. The pressure on my eye was around 90-something. The doctor said he'd never seen it as high. So he sent me to a hospital to have some treatment. What they said they were going to do was shoot a laser into my eye, into the drain, to clear the drain. If you touch the surface of your eye, it's wet. Okay, that's because there's water constantly going into it, and there's a little drain in there where the water drains out of. When you get glaucoma, that drain becomes blocked. So your eye is filling with water. So if you imagine a balloon on the end of a tap filling with water, what's going to happen eventually? It's going to pop. It's going to explode. And that's what was going on with my eye. That's why I was in such pain. So they sent me to a hospital and they tried to shoot a laser into the drain and they gave me some medication and sent me on my way. That was probably 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Bearing in mind, I'm still howling at the top of my voice at this time. I go home, I take some of the medication that kind of, you know, makes me drowsy and a little groggy and just stops, the, you know, takes the edge off the pain. I'm let in bed. It gets to 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm still moaning. I'm still groaning. The medication's wearing off. So my, uh, my wife calls my doctor again, apologizes for the late call, and he's, he was just dumbfounded that I was still in pain at this time. He's like, oh, my God, he needs to see a doctor right now. Fortunately, we found a surgeon in Pasadena that was still, you know, operating at three o'clock in the morning. We made the very hard decision of leaving the kids in the house unattended. You know, we just hope there's nothing we could do. We had to lock the door. I mean, you know, they, they were young teenagers. so It's not like, you know, we're talking babies here. But we locked the door. We drove to Pasadena. And then when the doctor looked at me, he said, Michael, you, you've got glaucoma. You've got advanced glaucoma. And he pulls out this little drain, a piece of plastic about two centimeters wide. He says, uh, we're, we're going to put this into your eye to relieve the drain. And I said, well, can I still fight? He said, Michael, that's the least of your problems. I'm like, well, no, I need to know whether I can fight or not. He said, well, actually, you can. I did this on a heavyweight uh, world championship boxer, and he still went on to fight. So I said, okay. So they did the operation, but... Uh, they messed up the operation because when I came around from surgery, I was in even more pain. So they had to go back in, undo the surgery that they'd done. Then they had to redo it. Uh, from there, the pain was gone, but unfortunately, so was most of the vision. Michael, I've heard a lot of stories in my day. That That is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. And, and I even knew the background about that. So why... If you're, in, if you're in danger of losing your eye and losing your sight, why was it so important for you to keep fighting? Well, you know, without going into too much detail, but I was, you know, in, in the fight game, there's a lot of crooks. There's a lot of criminals. There's a lot of pieces of shit, right? That when you start doing well, they want to take that money from you. And I got involved with a group of people in the UK that are, you know, I got to choose my words carefully, but, uh, you know, I went through some lawsuits. The entire thing was totally fabricated. Just utter, utter nonsense. It was found throughout the several trials that we went through that they were just fabricating documents and just making things up as they went along. Unfortunately, though, that's still going on to this day. So that, as, as you know, these long, long lawsuits with multiple trials, they cost a lot of money. So I had to still continue fighting uh, to A, provide for my family, uh, and B, to fight this lawsuit. After all this and all that sacrifice and after all the pain and, and the vision loss and all that type of thing, I didn't want to be left with nothing. So I still continue to fight. And as luck would have it, I, I became champion of the world along the way. But uh, that, as well as the fact that I'm probably a moron, piece all that together, there you go, I was still fighting. 
I mean, Michael, that's amazing. For instance, you but you were still fighting. You were fighting essentially with one eye, correct? Yeah, essentially. You know, I mean, there was flashes here and there. I could see a little bit, you know. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to say too much, <laughs> but you could. You, one could argue that. I would certainly argue that, and not only would I argue that, I mean, one thing, look, you're a different kind of breed or a different kind of cat if you get in the cage, period. You're a different kind of cat if you get into the cage with the types of people that you were getting into the cage with, and certainly something altogether different if you're doing so and you only have eyesight or vision in one eye. You fought Anderson Silva, right, with one eye, literally. You fought for a championship with vision in one eye. You defended that belt. I mean, the biggest fights of your career were during that time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I had the restricted vision, it was definitely uh, yeah, the high, you know, the, the the biggest fight of my career. As I say, I fought Anderson Silva, beat Luke Rockhold for the belt, took that on two weeks' notice, defended against Dan Henderson, and then fought against George St. Pierre at Madison Square Garden. And George St. Pierre even said on the microphone afterwards, he said, you know, we knew Michael couldn't really see out of that left eye, that right eye part of me, so we knew the left hook was the plan. And then from there, the game was up. You know, I mean, you can't be fighting at that kind of level, um, you know, when you, you know, when your opponents know that you've got restricted vision. So, you know, it makes it really hard. And then not only that, after that fight, I took a, a two-week, um, I was at home and Anderson Silva was supposed to fight Kelvin Gastelum in China. And Anderson Silva failed the steroid test and they needed somebody to fill in. Now, I knew I was retired pretty much, but I thought, screw it, why not? What's one more for the road? And then, uh, you know, get another payday as well, let's be frank. So I volunteered on a few days' notice, all I'd done since the last fight. As I say, it was two weeks, I think, in between the fights. All I'd done was sit on my couch and, you know, have a few beers and enjoy life with my family and eating and drinking because I've been dieting like crazy for the last two months. Certainly wasn't anywhere near a gym. So I took the fight, flew off to China. Uh, the fight didn't go my way. Funnily enough, you know, with uh, pretty much one eye and not training for it, having just lost the fight. So I, I, I lost that fight. Afterwards, I'm in a nightclub. We, we had an after party arranged. And I'm in a nightclub. And every time I look to my left, I see a flash of light. And every time I look to the left, I see a flash of light. Now, because of my history with the eye, I knew uh, that that is potential, um, you know, a detached retina in my good eye. And I started freaking out, and I was, I was, I was very, very worried because I thought, even if they can repair the detached retina in my good eye, I'm going to go blind. And I'm in a nightclub here, and, and I'm starting to get emotional, and I'm like, my t eyes are tearing up, and I'm like, I got to get out of here. People are going to think I'm crying because I, I, I lost a fight. I'm not crying because I've lost a fight. I'm crying because I think I'm going to go blind. So I leave the club. I go back to my hotel room. And everyone stayed. You know how it is when you're a fighter, right? You've got all these hangers on and this and that. But nobody came back apart from one man, Jason Perillo. He left. He came and knocked on my door. He came in my room, you know, and we had a good chat. And we had a few drinks. And then later, when the club closed, everyone else came back to my hotel suite. And by then, I got over feeling sorry for myself. And plus, I was drunk. And we all carried on drinking. The next day, everyone leaves for the airport. I, I, I had the last flight out of the day. I go back to the airport. I fall asleep on the plane. It was a heavy night of drinking. <laughs> I fall asleep on the plane, and then when I wake up halfway home from China, the flashes of light start happening again, uh -huh. and it all comes back to me, and I'm like, oh, my God. So uh, I'm trying to get on the Wi-Fi to Google these symptoms, but the Wi-Fi on the plane wasn't working. As soon as I land in L.A., I text my eye doctor. And I say, listen, I, I think I've got a detached retina. So he sends me off to this doctor. I go and see this doctor, 
and he says, right, we're going to put these drops in your eye, and uh, we're going to put these drops in your eye, and you're not going to be able to see. So anyway, so I say, I make a joke. Whenever I'm uncomfortable, I always make a stupid joke to try and mask my fears. I said, oh, well, I guess I better get used to this look, uh, or I better, better, better get used to this sight, meaning nothing. Right. And the doctor says, well, we're not quite there yet, Michael. And then that's when I really, really started to panic because he kind of confirmed my fears. Anyway, he tells me that I had a vitreous detachment. When you're in your mid-60s, 70s, you, so you got the cornea at the front, you got the retina at the back. Between the cornea and the retina, you've got millions of fibers called vitreous fibers, and they send images to the retina, which then sends that to the brain. When you're in your 60s or 70s, the vitreous detaches from the retina, but it just it gently slides off. Now, due to trauma when you're younger, that, that, that can detach due to trauma, or it can partially detach. That is what happened to me. I had a partially detached vitreous uh, on, on my good eye. Uh, and every time I looked to the left and I saw a flash of light, that's another one of those vitreous fibers pulling away. I said, I've got to be careful because every time one of those vitreous fibers pulls and causes that flash of light, it can cause the retina to detach or tear. He said, so you've got you to come back and see me every month. We've got to keep an eye on this. So anyway, needless to say, I never fought again. I, Although I actually did try and fight one more time, just couldn't come to a deal with the UFC that made it worthwhile. Uh, and then, yeah, that was that. That was the end of my fight career. Michael, I was just going to say, at the very end of that, I was going to say, I don't care how much money, and easy for me to say, I don't care what they offer you, do not fight again under any circumstance. Yeah, well, it was actually a good friend of mine. Uh, he On the phone, I was talking to him, and he said, what are you doing? Why are you going to fight? And, I, and again, you know, I'm, I said, I need the money. I need the money. He's like, Michael. And I'll never forget it. And it was, you know, it, it made my decision. Well, in fact, there was one other factor. But he said, Michael, think about if you actually went blind and you couldn't see. You would give every single penny you ever earned just to get your vision back. Right. I went, yeah, you're right. And then I remember I was flying up to New York. I do a podcast called Believe You Me. Check it out if you like. But I'm on the plane and I watch this movie called The Journeyman by Paddy Considine. He's a UK actor and it's a fantastic movie. Any of your listeners, if they get a chance, they should check it out. And it's about a boxer that, uh, you know, he defends his world title, but then he goes home and he, he develops brain damage from the bout. And it's, it's a very, very sad tale. At one point, he puts his, uh, his, his baby inside the washing machine and it, it, it's, it's very, very well done and it, it's, it's kind of, it's a traumatizing movie to watch. And obviously, with what I'd been through sitting there watching that, I was like, wow, yeah, no, what am I doing? I'm a goddamn moron. So when I landed in New York, I did my podcast, and I announced in my podcast that I was officially retired. Michael, I mean, if we were only talking about the eye and the injury, that'd be something. But there's so much more to your life and so much more that you went through on the way up. I mean, it would take it would take weeks, but you mentioned what it was like growing up. Let me ask you about that. And you talk about this in your book, and the book is amazing. It's called Quitters Never Win My Life in the UFC. And you grew up in a working-class town of Clitheroe, just outside of Manchester. What was that life like for you growing up? Yeah, listen, you know, I mean, I was happy as a child. You know, I mean, money was tight. My dad was a sniper in the Army. He, uh, he, he got, you know, he got medical discharge early and then just thrown on the scrap heap, so to speak, unlike, you know, much like a lot of soldiers, unfortunately. So, and there was eight of us. Money was very, very tight. You know, we were poor, but, you know, that was never an issue for me. It was a violent household growing up. I saw a lot of violence. I saw a lot of things a child shouldn't have. Uh, and then it was, that just, it was that kind of town. It was a small town. All people did was dead-end jobs, and then they'd go drink, you know. And then what would happen when they drink? Well, they'd end up getting into fights. 
and that was kind of my childhood, to be honest, you know, going up to pubs when I was 16 years old. You got no business drinking alcohol at that time. At 41 years old, I now finally know that, but when I was a kid, you think it's great, and then you end up getting in fights. And then what happens when you carry on getting arrested? Well, it's simple. You go to prison because you can't behave like that. And, uh, you know, I went to prison for a month. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I mean, listen, it was a low point of my life, but I thanked that judge because that was the turning point of my life. When that judge sent me down to prison and I had to, you know, I, I had to be with these people that no disrespect to any prisoners, that's the dregs of society. That's the lowest of the low. And I thought to myself when I was there, I thought, I'm better than this. This is not me. This is not who I am. So after that, I, I never got in another fist fight again. And then I started thinking about how I could, you know, provide a good life for my children. And I just kept thinking about fighting. I can fight. I could always fight. And I had a lot of success as a martial artist when I was a kid. So I tracked down uh, an old coach of mine, and he told me all about the explosion of the UFC. But this is 2002, you know, so not many people had heard of it back then. Um, and, yeah, he told me all about the explosion of the UFC, he told me that there was money to earn. And he, you know, we came up with a plan. So a few months later, I quit work. I moved down to another city, Nottingham. I trained there Monday to Fridays. I'd come back and do some work at the weekends. And between my wife and I, we were just about able, you know, to cover the, the mortgage payment. And, you know, things were tight for a while. But then after a couple of years, I was in the UFC and slowly started making money. Nate, you did, Michael, but you, you got a big break when you went on The Ultimate Fighter, and you were a breakout star there, but at that time, you were still working, and you were working in a factory. I mean, I would imagine that, I don't even have to imagine, I would imagine that was really difficult, busting your ass in a factory, doing everything you could to get food on the table and pay your bills. So how strong was that fuel and that motivation once you got on that show to do everything in your power not to go back to that previous life, that blue-collar life? Yeah, but that was always my motivation, and it still is to this day. To this you know day. I mean? Because, yeah, still to this day. That's still what gets me out of bed and keeps me working hard, you know, and that's why I'm still, I feel blessed that I'm still in a position where I still work for the UFC and I'm able to work on TV and do a podcast and all these things because I've done it. And that's why, like right now, you know, going back to all this uh, self-isolation and quarantining that we have to do, you know, I'm I'm very vocal about it. I'm on Twitter. I'm saying, guys, please stay the hell at home. Don't. Don't be going out. Don't socialize. Don't go to work. But, of course, I get a lot of kickback from people on Twitter saying, look, Mike, we can't afford to do that. And, and I understand that. I understand what that was like. You know, Jesus Christ, they're just living paycheck to paycheck. And if they don't have that money coming in, there's no food on the table. They're getting kicked out of the houses and things like that. And those days, it was a long time ago, but I still very, very much remember that. You know, and I remember busting my ass all week starting work at 6 a.m., finishing at 6 p.m., and just doing manual labor all day, going home, absolutely exhausted, doing six days a week, and still having no money, still being broke, still not having, you know, I mean, yeah, of course, could pay the rent, could, you know, you know, go shopping once a week, buy the cheapest shit that we had in the house, driving the biggest piece of crap car that we could find, busting my ass, and still having nothing, you know what I mean? So going back to that was always a very, very powerful motivator for me. So you know exactly. I'm sure these same people on Twitter are saying, hey, easy for you to say rich guy. And you're saying, now wait, hold up, hold up. I know yeah. what it's like to go check to check. I know what it's like to wonder if we have enough to eat. You know, stay inside. 
Stay inside. I get this. So I'm just skipping around a little bit because I really am happy to talk to you. You get the championship. I mean, you worked long and hard. You spent the better part of a decade taking on everybody and fighting some of the toughest fights. What did it mean to get the opportunity and finally cash that in and become the first ever British champion in the UFC after a decade of being in the company? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard to find the words what that meant to me because yeah I'd, I'd worked so hard for so long and i worked my way up to being the number one contender and then i lost those fights and then i worked my way up to being number one contender and i'd lose the number one contender fight again all right there was people on steroids and things like that but still the facts are the facts i'd lose those number one contender matchups and it came to a point where people were you know they'd say a bisping he was always a great fighter he was really good but he could never win the big one you know, and yeah, listen, that, that, that's not too bad. If that was to be my legacy, it wasn't too bad. But I knew in the gym, I knew when I was training, I, I was good enough to do that. I knew I could compete at that level. I knew I had what it takes uh, took to be world champion. Um, but of course, you gotta you got to show that. Now, I was in Toronto. I was filming a movie with Vin Diesel, Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. And uh, Ariel Helwani, MMA journalist, texted me one day. He said, Chris Weidman is out of his title fight with Luke Rockhold. Uh, this may be a chance for you to get a shot. Now, the fight was two weeks away. I, I was in Toronto filming a movie. Hadn't been there for, uh, sorry, been to a gym in three months. But still, I thought, screw it. You know, I'll throw my name in the hat. And I thought, I probably won't get the title fight. But at least I'll get some good grace from the company and maybe... I'll get the title fight next time, you know. Anyway, Dana, Dana White, UFC president, never got back to me. So I went to my buddy's house that night, had a few beers, watched a basketball game. Nothing crazy, but still definitely overindulged. And then the next morning on SportsCenter, they announced that I was fighting for the middleweight world title in two weeks. <laughs> I was shit. like, holy shit. So uh, I stepped on the scale. I was weighing like, I don't know, 215 pounds. I had two weeks to train for a world title fight and weigh in at 185 pounds. Holy but, shit. You know, made, made it all happen. All the pieces fell into place and I got the knockout in the first round. So, yeah, to answer your question, it was amazing. You know, it was a lifetime's worth of hard work that went into that. Because I remember saying to my boxing coach at the time, after I got the fight and I went on a run, I was trying to shift some of the weight. I was on the phone to my coach. I said, I don't believe this. I was just full of all these negative thoughts. And I just thought, sorry to talk about myself in third person, this is so typical of Michael Bisping. I get a title fight on two weeks' notice, a title fight that I've always wanted. I get it on two weeks' notice against a guy that already beat me. I haven't been near a gym. I'm out of shape. And he was like, Michael, what are you talking about? You've been training your entire life. You've been doing martial arts your whole life. You know, okay, you're a little bit out of shape. We've still got two weeks. So anyway, that's what we did. We focused for two weeks. As I say, we got the knockout in the first round. So, Michael, like, nothing's easy. Nothing's easy. No fights are easy. But would you not say that, like, of your entire career, that was your easiest fight? Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. I actually said that. How do you explain that? I said that to the cameras. That was the easiest fight in my life. You know, I didn't have a mark on me. didn't have a scratch on me. That's the beauty of those four-ounce gloves or, or landing a good punch. When you land it in the right spot at the right time, Everybody's going down. Hey, Michael, what does that feel like? I mean, since none of us know, what's it feel like to land a perfect punch with a four-ounce glo four glove? Can you explain that feeling, like that physical feeling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's the same whether it's a four-ounce glove or a ten-ounce glove because when you throw it, you get the feedback on your knuckle. You, get, you, you feel the impact, and it goes through the glove, and you feel the bone go through the glove, and it connects with the chin. And, like, it's a feeling 
Like, like you land the punch, nah, whatever. But when you feel that good shot and you get that, you get that feeling, you get that feedback on your fist, you know you landed a good shot. And then, of course, you see the guy fall over. And I remember we were in there and then boom, I landed. I was like, oh, that's a good one. And everything kind of slows down. And then I saw him fall over. I was like, holy cow. And then he jumped back up. I'm like, no, you don't, buddy. Boom. You're going back down. I landed another one. He went down. Then I landed a couple more. And that was that. But yeah, uh, <laughs> one of the greatest punches I ever landed in my life. Well, you know, I'll tell you, just my only experience with it, you know, for a while, how, how well do you know James Lightning Wilkes? Are you friendly with him at all? Do you know him at all? Yeah, so James was on uh, season nine, I think, of The Ultimate Fighter, and I was the coach on The Ultimate Fighter, so that's how I know James. I know him a little bit. I've seen him here and there, but outside of that, I don't really know him, but as I say, I spent two months with him filming a reality TV show for the UFC, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar, yeah. Okay, so you, know, so you know at least a familiarity. So for a little while, when I was down, I would train with him in Orange County. I wanted to learn just some basic things, and it just goes to show you, like, the world-class athletes that you guys are. I mean, since he's lightning Wilkes, he had great hand speed, and you know, he wasn't showing me anything that I couldn't handle, but I, I couldn't get out of the way of anything at all, and then we'd go and train on the mat. And he could tell, he's like, you know what? You better get comfortable down here. You have to be comfortable down here. I said, honestly, I'm not. He said, you better be, because if it goes to the ground in the street, you're a dead man. I said, you know what? I have a solution. I quit. You know, and then that was that. <laughs> but but, but, I, but we're still friends to this day, and I've got immense respect for his athleticism and what he brought to it. And I thought that maybe you guys would work together on that show. Listen, before you go, so Anderson Silva, that, there were not a lot of people saying that you were going to beat him. But you always knew you could. You always knew you could. Was that just the normal fighter in you, the normal athlete in you? Silva was one of the best to do it. How did you know you would beat him? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he definitely was one of the best, if not the best. And he was certainly impressive. It wasn't so much anything that, well, there's certain things that Anderson did that, that made me feel that I could beat him. But it was more his opponents. His opponents were always scared of him. They always, you could always, you, listen, they always say the oldest line in, in the fight game is, you know, you can win a fight at the scale. You know, that's why whenever I used to weigh in for fights, you know, and, you know, you, to some people that don't know, the uninitiated, it, I, I, I look like a thug, I look like a hooligan, a barbarian, because I'm, I'm getting in their face, I'm talking all kinds of shit, I'm, calling, I'm saying this, that, and the other. Because that's the last time I'm going to see them before we step into a cage with each other and I'm going to try and knock you out. So I'm going to try and get in their head and make them doubt themselves, right? So there's, there's the mind games at play here. It's not just a case of being a bloody, an idiot in front of a bunch of people trying to sell the fight. I'm trying to deliver a message. See me tomorrow night, I'm going to come and knock the shit out of you. So, so that can work. And as I say, with Anderson Silva... All of his opponents, they fought scared. They, they, they didn't commit to their punches. They were like, they were in awe of the great Anderson Silva. And when I fought him, yeah, true to my nature back then, you know, I'm probably still now, you know, I was talking a lot of smack coming up through the fight, through, you know, the, the build of the camp. I was talking a lot of shit. But that wasn't because I didn't respect Anderson. Of course I respect Anderson. I respect what he's done. He's had a magnificent career. It was because I couldn't allow myself to mentally put this man on a pedestal. So I had to strip him down constantly, and I had to fight that way. And I truly believed, listen, he had some amazing kicks, some amazing knees and things like that, but he couldn't really, you know, he didn't have the best boxing. He wasn't a particularly good boxer. And if you had the balls to close him down, to walk him down, push him up against the fence, and then the, 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 the old, you've got to crowd a kicker. If somebody likes to kick, 
They need space to do that. So if you crowd the kicker and get in the boxing range and take the fight to him and get up front and personal and in the boxing range in the pocket, then they've got no choice. They've got to box you or they've got to clinch. And I knew that if I crowded him, didn't allow him to use his boxer tricks and didn't allow him to mentally intimidate me and take away those tools, that he wasn't that good, you know. And listen, it was a tough fight. I definitely still got a few scars on my face from that. But I did walk away the victor. Michael, the amazing thing about your career, when you talk about the things you would say and the things that you would do, and there was something behind that. Obviously, you were trying to get inside their head and send a message before the fight. But it, you were really, really polarizing as a fighter. And there was a lot of people that did not like you and a lot of hate. And now you look at it. and But by the way, it seemed like you reveled in that and you got fuel out of that and you fed off that. But now look at you. Now you're a really, really admired broadcaster. You have a successful book. You went to the UFC. I think that if somebody didn't know your background and they listened to this podcast today, they'd be like, this fucking guy's the best. And now it's nothing but love. It wasn't always like that when you fought. What's it like right now when it's nothing but love? Yeah, it's definitely weird. You know, and and, and listen, you know, I, I've got a big mouth. And, and a lot of the time when I was talking shit as well, just for the record, you know, it's uh, just kind of my sense of humor. Of you know course. what I mean? Like, of course, I get that. I want, I want to be very clear. Sorry to interrupt. I understand that. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I just be, you know, in England we say taking the piss. I'm just taking the piss. I'm having a laugh. Like, We're going to fight. I'm going to get through my day. I'm not going to take myself too seriously. I'm going to definitely take the piss out of you if I'm going to fight, you know. So that's what I do a lot of the time. And I think uh, a lot of the people watching didn't necessarily understand that. Uh, but then, you know, I went through phases where I was really liked. And then, of course, I opened my mouth and then num um, public enemy number one again. And then, you know, I'd, I'd rebound my, my, my image and everyone would like me again. And then once again, I'd say something that turned everybody off. Fortunately, these days, um, well, I'm talking more than ever. That's all I ever do. But the, the fighting element has been taken away. So they don't see that side of me of what is perceived to be my nasty side. Uh, and yeah, it's weird. It's weird. You know, it's very nice. I'm very grateful. These days on Instagram, Twitter, things like that, generally, it's, uh, it's, it's nice comments. You know, if you look at the comment section, it's 99% positivity. Whereas a few years ago, my God, it was very, very toxic. But yeah, of course, I'll take it all day. Michael, let me ask you something before you go. Like, full disclosure, I love Jorge Masvidal. Like, he's one of my favorite athletes right now. Now, you and he did not get off on the right foot. In fact, it looked like the two of you may actually go at some point outside the <laughs> octagon, but then something happened that brought the two of you together. What was it, and what do you think of him now? Yeah, yeah. Well, first off, I think Masvidal's great. I love watching him fight. I love his character. I love his personality. And I love what he stands for. And what he stands for is no shit. You know, if someone's going to talk shit, you know, you know, it's one thing in the octagon, but he's a very much a man of the street, you know, and, and he's a man of honor. He's like, you want to talk shit about me in the media, but when I see you face to face, he's going to be on. Now, and, and you know, you've got to respect that. Um, now, the problem was, Joel Romero, he, was a, uh, he still is a middleweight contender, and I was champion of the world at that time. Ro Joel Romero and Robert Whittaker, they were fighting for a number one contender belt. In fact, they were fighting for the interim belt. I had a knee injury. So anyway, they wanted me to go octagon side and go in to the cage and challenge the winner. Now, Joel Romero is Cuban, as is Jorge Masvidal. Now, we were on Fox Sports at the time. And when I had to go down to the octagon, I was working the desk for the pre and post fight show. When I had to go down to the octagon, one of the ladies that worked for Fox, I don't know where she got it from, but she had this little 
Cuban paper flag on like a cocktail stick, maybe that you put in drinks or something, you know? And she brought that with her. And as we were walking down, she joked, she said, you should rip it up and throw it at him. Anyway, in between rounds, I was right behind Yo Romero's corner. And in between rounds, he was gesturing at me, he was swearing at me, sticking his tongue out and things like that. Well, anyway, you know, I know we're on camera. I'm playing the pantomime bad guy. So I grab the Cuban flag and I rip it up and I throw it at him, right? It turns out Cubans are very patriotic because the next day I must have maybe 100 death threats from Cubans. Yoel did this video of himself in Cuba burning, uh, sorry, dancing on a burning Union Jack, the British flag. And, uh, yeah, you know, the Cubans were pretty pissed. And then I was fighting in New, uh, New York. Jorge Masvidal was fighting in New York. And as I walked through the lobby, you know, he started sticking up for his boy, so to speak. And, we, you know, we, we got into it. We had a few words. And then when I was in China for the fight I was talking about earlier, he was there as well. And, again, he started talking shit, and we nearly had a fight. Now, when uh, fast forward a couple of years later, last year sometime, Jorge Masvidal was in England fighting Darren Till. And I was walking through the hotel, uh, some, some corridor where the rooms are one night, and I had a few people with me, and there was some guy walking towards me in the darkness. And Masvidal, uh, as I say, you know, he was talking a lot of shit, he was sending me abusive messages, whatever, who cares. But as I'm walking along, and I had three or four guys with me, I'm walking along, and then there's this guy, and as he gets closer, I see that it's Masvidal. And he, like, just stops and, like, kind of scoots to the side to let us all pass. And when I saw it was Masvidal, I'm like, hey, what's up, George? How are you doing? Good luck tomorrow night. You know, Robert, you know, the, the guy's got to fight. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not going to cause shit. So I'm not going to try and throw him off his game. You know, it, it's a big deal. So I said, hey, George, how are you doing? Good luck tomorrow night. And that was it. And then from there, I, I think, well, he did an interview saying, no, that, that was really nice. And right? that was a stand-up thing for him to do. He could have caused some trouble for me. He could have done whatever. The reality is, Jim, I'm... I'm 41 years old. I'm not bloody getting into fights in hotel lobbies or hotels anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Regardless of the situation. That was me 20 years ago. As I say, I'm 41 with three kids. But Jorge uh, appreciated that. And uh, next time I saw him at a UFC event, we went up, we shook hands. We had a good laugh about it. And then we got a little picture for Instagram. Yeah, I love that. That's a great story. And I think that he appreciated that. Michael, that you were like... Yeah, yeah, no, listen, George is awesome. Jorge, Jorge is awesome, should I say. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I love watching him fight. I love his style. And I love what he stands for. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a massive fan. I am too, man. I, I, I'm mesmerized by his street fighting. Have you seen the old video of him street oh, fighting? Yeah. It's fucking oh, yeah. amazing, yeah, listen, the isn't guy's it? The guy's a, listen, I'll tell you a story. When I was in, he's told this story publicly. When I was in China at that nightclub, what I was talking about earlier, when me and Jorge, when we settled it, so to speak, we were in Uruguay. And uh, we, we ended up having a few drinks. And then the next day, we get a taxi uh, to the airport together. So we went from one hand hating each other to the next minute we're like best buds in the back of an Uber. Pardon me, not a taxi. <laughs> in the back of an Uber going to the, uh, to the airport. And we're talking about China. And he tells me this story. He said, I, I went into the bathroom and had this gold chain on. And he said, and two guys walked in. And one of them kind of like flicked my gold chain. And he said, I don't know if they're going to rob me or what. He said, so bang. I punched this one guy, I knocked him out then. Bang! I punched the other guy, and I knocked him out. And he says, and then a third guy comes walking into the bathroom, and he says, I don't know if he was with them or not, but I couldn't take that chance, so bang! And I knocked him out as well. And I'm sitting there in the back of this room thinking, you are a psycho. You're a psycho, but you're awesome. I love it. 
That is fucking amazing. See, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> well, it's not amazing, you came right on. That's you know fucking I mean? amazing. It's a great story. It's an amazing story. Or the only thing better <laughs> is not knowing that you're messing with Jorge Masvidal, right? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. I mean, he's not a small guy, but he's not the biggest guy. Right. You know, but the guy can fight like a motherfucker. That's for sure. Michael Bisping. Michael, how about, uh, I don't want to push my luck, but sometimes, sometimes, somehow, we got to come together and have one. Like, what's the, uh, what's the adult beverage of choice at this point in your life? Oh, well, the adult beverage of choice, I mean, that's always a contentious issue. You know, I'm always trying to not drink as much. As an Englishman growing up, it was part of our culture. You know, I, I did a month not drinking at the start of the year, and then bad habits slowly crept in. And then just at the weekend, obviously with this quarantine and self-isolation, you know, I mean, Jesus, if, it, if there's ever a chance to drink, now is the time. But I've come up with this new plan where I'm going to drink for one week and then not drink for the other. And if I stick to that, that's 26 weeks of the year, which is six months of the year where I'm not drinking. And then on the other weeks, I'll uh, you know, try and take it easier. So I think if I, if I can achieve that plan, which is doable because I'm not an alcoholic, I can abstain for a week and then the next week go crazy. I think that's a great idea. And on next week, when it's a green week and I can go and I can drink, yeah, I mean, I like Stella Artois, I like beer, I like red wine, I like a bit of vodka. Listen, I don't discriminate. <laughs> what kind of vodka? Uh, Belvedere. Okay. Okay, I got you. Yes. All right. So this book is called <laughs> Quitters Never Win My Life in the UFC. Michael, I got to tell you, that's, that's how you show up. I've done, I've done a lot of these things. That's the kind of conversation. You know you have a podcast now. You know how this game works. That's the way you show up. I appreciate you so much. And that was an absolute blast. Uh, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me, buddy. Anytime. And thank you. And keep up the good work. Now, one of the very best parts about having a podcast is being able to drop a totally necessary, but not at all gratuitous, F-bomb. So allow me to say, that was a fucking great episode. Enormous shout out to Michael Bisping for absolutely crushing his episode. What a storyteller. What a warrior. What an entertainer. I love that conversation. And as you can see, 123 episodes in, and we are not slowing down, and we are not taking a step back. So get subscribed right now. Jump on this train. It's already out the station. Trust me. If you want to be a part of the pod, lob me a voicemail anytime you want as well about anything at all. Put this number in your phone, 949-385-0447, 949-385-0447. Speaking of the voicemail, here is this week's tape. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and I will see you next Wednesday. First new message. Romy, why is a liquor store in Wisconsin essential business? Message deleted. Next message. Jim, this is Bill from Harrisburg, PA. Just wanted to shout out to you and XORTI crew for a great job doing it during this time of crisis. Thank you for all you're doing, especially the story on that one fatal punch you just had on. Take care and be safe out there, Jim. Thanks to all the medical people out there for what they're doing. Take care and have a good day. Message saved. Next message. What's up, Rome? It's Dr. Dave. Our hospital is getting us ramped up to the point that in case the shit hits the fan, I'm getting trained in the emergency department, help take care of a uh, kids down there in case all of our ED docs get sick. Tell everybody to make sure their doctors and all their healthcare workers get enough personal protective equipment. Talk to your congressman. Make sure that we're protected because we don't want the public to get sick. We don't want us to get sick. We want this thing to be fucking over. Thanks, man. Later. Message saved. Next message.
Romy, Justin, and Melbourne, man. I just heard your conversation with Ed Milet. Man, that thing was incredible, dude. I was so happy to hear you kind of pull back the curtains a little bit, talk about your career, the downfalls, the upswings. I mean, you got to grind it out, and that's what you motivate us. We don't all have the glory, but we grind it, and we look forward to the future of greatness. Message saved. Next message. Yes, this is Ken in Milwaukee. The take you had on the meat thermometer the other day, my wife is still laughing about. She wanted to take my temperature the other day when she was making a roast, and I said, oh, hell no. If she said if I was well done, she was going to take me in. I'm glad Rex didn't call in and have an anal thermometer joke about it. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Rome, this is Rico from Toledo. I drive over the road for a large delivery company, and I look forward to your show every day and haven't missed one of your podcasts yet. Hopefully you can keep them both going. Thank a trucker. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Jump man. This is Sully, New Hampshire. Heard you talking about Tiger King. And I just have one thing to say. What in the crystal mess was that? <laughs> I can't even finish. I can't let you go. First time, long time. <laughs> Message deleted. Next message. Sam Smack, Tom in Tampa. I'm hating Brady coming here. I used to be able to go to a game, get a beer, pee whatever I wanted to. Now I can't park. I can't do anything. That's my beef. Message deleted. You have no more messages.